All right, you're going to need your journal. You're going to need a pen. You need something to take notes with. You know, have you write down a few things and underline a few things and draw a few arrows this morning. <clears throat> now we come all the way to chapter 14. We're almost done with First Corinthians. Special Jeremy will close next week uh, with really what is the, the thesis, the highlight, the zenith of the whole books, chapter 13, and he'll take that as the finale next week. Let me recap a little bit. We did a roundtable last week, and we talked about chapter 12 and. Uh, uh, introed into spiritual gifts, really, and uh, the body metaphor. One of the things we talked about last week is that spiritual gifts are given from God through us to the body. And so when we say, you know, what's your gift, or I have this spiritual gift, or they're exercising their spiritual gift, I just want to be sure we really understand what we're saying. It's, I have a speaking gift. It's my gift, but it's really not my gift. It's my gift, but according to Ephesians, my gift is for you to be edified in the Word of God. You have been given gifts, will be given gifts. Gifts may move around and change and, and all kinds of things as things develop and, and as situations change. The Holy Spirit's going to supernaturally empower you to do things, activities, manifestations, gifts, synonyms, all the same, do things, spiritual activities that build this body up, and you can call that your spiritual gift, but it's really for, but from God through you to the body. And we talked last week about a spiritual person is one who is obeying the Spirit, because the whole book is written to answer these back and forth exchanges between Paul and the Corinthians to answer the question, what is a spiritual person? It's the same thing that's dividing us today because we can't answer that question uniformly. And because we can't answer it uniformly, we have Baptists and Methodists and Charismatics and Pentecostals. And this, is what, this is why we have this division within the body of Christ today because we cannot uniformly answer some theological questions. And so we have different camps who answer some questions differently. Now, this is very relevant because uh, the, the more charismatic denominations uh, or non-denomination is where this is all going. If you just want to know where Christianity is going in your lifetime, it's moving away from denominations and more to a non-denominational, more charismatic version of Christianity than you grew up in. The average Christian by 2050 is a 15-year-old girl with brown or black skin living below the equator in a village. That's where it's going. They can prove it demographically. So the study's out of Baylor by Jenkins right now. This is where it's going. And they're more charismatic in their version, their tradition of Christianity, than maybe you are if you grew up. Now, that's only true for some of you who grew up in the tradition of, let's say, conservative Baptist roots. But that's not uniform in this room because we have a lot of people here that come from Pentecostal roots. Craig, you come from Assembly of God or Pentecostal? Assembly of God. Uh, Kathy, up. Is she Assembly of God or Pentecostal? Leah, where are you at? Oh, Kathy, are you here? Do you still attend church here? <laughs> yeah. Assembly of God or Pentecostal? What's your roots? Assembly of God. Okay. Anybody Pentecostal roots? So we can call you out and embarrass you? No. Pentecostal roots. Uh, I always say Methodist, but you correct me. It's Wesleyan. Sorry. Say again. 
basically the same. Yeah, as I said, I got some Methodist roots in, in my family that run deep, and then some some Baptist, and then just some Hellraiser on Susan's side, and this uh, pirates and bootlegger. Who knows what's in her family tree? Anyway, you get that we are mixed up. But we're really not, because you know what unifies us? This is what Paul's been saying for 14 chapters. Same God. Same gospel. Christ died for our sins and was buried. Christ rose from the grave and was seen. Same gospel. Same gospel. You still okay with that? Kathy, you okay with that? Eric McNair, where are you? I know you're some kind of twisted thing too. You okay with Same gospel. Same gospel. You know what I'm saying? Same gospel, right? Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the grave and was seen. This is the core of the gospel. And what Paul's saying is, y'all are being divided now in your church. Same Holy Spirit. Why are you being divided? Well, because one says, I have this gift and it's better than your gift. He's like, wait, the gifts are not yours. They're from God through you to the church And the Holy Spirit decides what gift you get. It's not like you earned it as a merit badge for your coolness or your spirituality. It's given to you to edify the body of Christ. So I just hope, I just want to keep saying these things out loud so we can all sync up and stay synced up. Because I have baggage and you have baggage and it's hard to let go of. It's hard to let go of. So we're going to keep saying some things out loud. The Spirit is empowering us to build up the body of Christ. Because the more we can build each other up, the more disciples we can make. The more we can build each other up, the more we can train up generation, raise up people who can replicate and duplicate and share the gospel, expand the kingdom and make disciples and lead people to Christ. That's why we want to build up the body of Christ and the church of Jesus Christ. And what Paul said, they were saying, well, here's what makes us spiritual. They answered the question wrong, by the way. And Paul saying, no, 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 no. 14 chapters of no up to this point. A spiritual person is engaged in spiritual activity. A spiritual person has affirmed the gospel. A spiritual person is not pursuing the world's uh, version of wisdom. A spiritual person is listening to the Holy Spirit. We all agree on that so far. A spiritual person, when the Holy Spirit leads you, you confess Jesus is Lord. And that's what Paul's saying. That's what it means to be a spiritual person. Now this conversation on spiritual gifts started in chapter 12. It runs three chapters, 12, 13, and 14. And again, Jeremy will go, he gets the easy part, beautiful part. Next, Listen, chapter 13 is one of the most beautiful things ever written on planet earth. And uh, y'all will enjoy those beautiful, beautiful words next week. The conversation, though, begins in chapter 12. Watch how Paul begins this conversation. This is last week now. I'm still recapping. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts. It's going to run three chapters explaining that sentence now. I'm going to talk to you about spiritual gifts. Notice after the colon, who's he talking to? Okay, now I'm going to ask you to be very sharp this morning. And watch the words and be very, very clear and and interactive with me. Paul is talking to the brothers. You're not allowed to scratch out and the sisters here. He's talking to the brothers and the sisters. Okay, and I'm just going to keep pointing this out to you. And I want to talk to you about spiritual gifts. Since the spiritual gifts are not assigned by gender, there are no passages in the Bible that I can take you to where the gifts are parsed by gender. In other words, I stand before you 
someone who studied the Bible my whole life, and I have no place in the Bible to turn to you to say, see, the gift of this is assigned to males, the gift of this is a female column, male column, female column, male column, female column. The gifts are never parsed by gender in the Scripture. They're never assigned by the Apostle Paul. Hey, to the ladies at Corinth, Ephesus, and Philippi, consider this. Here's some gifts. To the men down at Galatia, here, consider this. Here's some things you might want to think about, that these are the types of things the Holy Spirit does through a woman versus these are the types of things the Holy Spirit might do through a man. You will not find that in the Scripture. The gifts are not parsed by gender. So Paul is talking to brothers and sisters about the gifts, and then he digresses from the gifts because he's not going to talk specifically about the gifts until everybody can understand the body metaphor. That's chapter 12. The whole chapter now digresses into the body metaphor where he's saying, unless you understand, we are many, yet one. As your body has many members, yet you are one human being. This is the body of Christ, and he's making a simple e pluribus unum explanation about what, how you can both be individuals, yet one body in Christ, and he uses the human body as a metaphor to illustrate that. We are many different people, gifted in many different ways, and we are forged together and united by the same Holy Spirit of God. So 1 Corinthians is written to answer this question, what is a spiritual person? That's what the whole book's about. And really, this is what our denominational struggles today are about. Who's right? Who's wrong? What does it mean to be a spiritual person? The Corinthians have answered this question in this way. A spiritual person is one who possesses the greatest spiritual gift. And that spiritual gift is tongues. Now, that's the way the Corinthians answered the question. I'm not saying it's right. As a matter of fact, Paul says, uh, 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 it's wrong. Now, that's not Bobby, that's Paul. Inspired of the Holy Spirit says no. Matter of fact, in chapter 12, he asks seven rhetorical questions in a row. Are all apostles, are all prophets, do all speak in tongues? Now, it doesn't mean some don't, and he's never telling you no tongues. He's not say, but what he's saying is that can't be the answer to the question because if everybody doesn't speak in tongues, then how could that be the ultimate sign of you being a spiritually mature person? The Corinthians have answered the question incorrectly. Now, when you see the word tongue in your New Testament, it's the Greek word glossa. And glossa is, like most words we talk about in here in detail, nuanced. Uh, uh, words have nuanced of meaning. I was reminded this week, and I was reminded of the office just a minute ago because Damon McMurdo and Trey came up to pray with me before the service, and they're both really characters. And uh, you never know what's going to happen in prayer time when those two show up. And so, uh, but I was reminded this week that words, even though you know the meaning of a word, it can change. I had uh, dinner with the Macbeths this week. They have two teenage boys. All those boys schooled me. Yeah, you're not allowed to say moist. Susan and I were a little thick, so we were going to the gym. But thick doesn't mean thick anymore. Thick means voluptuous, I hear now. And, and y'all are pretty sus about all of this, changing the meaning of words. 
So now if you know what I'm talking about, fine. If you don't, good. I didn't either. But that's my whole point. Words change over time. This is stupid, but they, they legitimately change over time. And words have nuance. And we talked about that clearly. I think uh, uh, maybe David and Jeremy discussed that a little bit from chapter 11 in the, on the podcast. How Paul uses the, me- the head metaphorically. No, now he's really talking about your head. No, wait a second. Now he's talking about something else. Uh, head's a very nuanced word. Fifteen definitions. Cambridge Dictionary in English for a noun only. So now the word glossa. It can mean this. Definition one. A tongue. It's the moist thing in your mouth. <laughs> that big blob of moist flesh in your mouth. That's your tongue. Now that's the primary definition of tongue. Don't show me yours, but you've got one. And that's the de- first definition. Now... To pull it a little further, the second definition in the, in, in the dictionary would be this, a language or dialect used by a particular people distinct from that of another nation. Now this is what you would think, uh, you know, French, Russian, German, Spanish, Portuguese, okay? Languages, that one is distinct from the nation of another. Now the Corinthians are introducing a third nuanced definition to this glossa Greek word, and the Corinthians are defining it as an ecstatic language, a heavenly language, possibly angelic language. You understand what's happening? We're talking angel. We're talking angel right now. It's a heavenly language that we are speaking, an ecstatic language to which there's no human explanation to. So when you see this tongues in, in the text we're dealing with, what I want you to know is there's at least there's some nuances to this word, and you need to be aware of it, because Paul is famous for his sarcasm, he is famous for his wit and his wordplay. And Paul can be talking to you about, hey, you've got your head done up nice, next thing you know he's talking about something else, okay? He's not talking about hair anymore, he's talking about source of the Mississippi River. For all, I mean, he just can switch gears like that. He's famous for his wordplay, so I want you to be asking yourself, as you read through the different passages of the Bible, what is happening here with tongues? Is this the member? Is this a language? Is this the ecstatic thing? What am I dealing with in the passage? And within a passage, Paul, with his turn of phrase, can flip back and forth between meanings just like that. So let's begin. Now that's background. Let's get to the message. Let's begin with this question. Should we, we, not the Corinthians now, should we be pursuing spiritual gifts? I want you to wrestle with this just for a second now. Should we, should you, as a part of this church, we as the church of the whole, should we, should, should spiritual gifts be a pursuit that we're engaged in where we're saying to God, God, Gift me, empower me, so that I might use the gifts, edify the body of Christ. Should gifts be something that we are pursuing here at Cornerstone? I feel like I've now made you nervous. (laughs) Got really still and quiet. Okay, that's a legit question because depending on what your tradition is, you're going to answer this different ways. Now, I think the answer is yes, but hold on. I'll explain. As I finish the round table last week, one of our young theologians got me in the foyer and said, hey, man, I just thought you were going to talk about cessationism this morning. And I didn't because chapter 12 is really about the body metaphor. It's not the place for cessationism, but today is. So 
let me talk to you about cessationism. And if I had just said to you, hey, what are y'all thoughts on cessationism? Most of you are like, I voted no. I mean, you know, okay. And I'm not talking down to you. It's just not common usage in a church. All right, let me explain cessationism. Cessationism and continualism. Continualism. Cessationism, that doesn't roll off the tongue very nicely, and continuationism. Cessationism is this. Cessationism is, to be a cessationist, it means you believed, you do believe, there's a Freudian slip, you do believe that there are certain gifts of the Holy Spirit mentioned in the Bible that are no longer available for the church today. Cessationism, a cessationist, believes some or all of the spiritual gifts have ceased. Just think of the word cease, cessationism. That was then, this is now, that's a different time. And, you know, when the apostles this and the Bible this and whatever that, now that stopped and that no longer happens in modern Christendom. The gifts have ceased. That's a cessationist. Okay? So I want you to be thinking right now, are you a cessationist? Do you think the gifts have stopped? Do you think the Holy Spirit no longer works in that way? The traditions, now I'm overgeneralizing everything, and there are exceptions to everything I'm saying, so nobody needs to send me an email and say, well, I was raised this, but that. I get it. To explain it in five minutes, I've got to oversimplify it, okay? Cessationists are typically people from Lutheran tradition, Baptist tradition, uh, Presbyterian tradition. Anyone who's a dispensationalist will typically be a cessationist. I can speak very frankly for the Baptist and all the young seminary students in the church. You were all taught dispensationalism probably and you were all taught cessationism. And you were taught by the textbooks of the professors we know that all teach this and it was drilled into you, you know, from the time you went off to a Christian college. The gifts have ceased, blah, 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 blah. If you came from one of these traditions, you were taught the gifts are not in play. Now, let's talk about continuationism. A continuationist, you, you get it already, believes that the spiritual gifts have continued uninterrupted and whatever the New Testament talks about is still the kingdom of God, it's still the church age, and nothing is, it, we're still in the end times from the moment of Christ forward, and it's whatever's in play in the New Testament is in play right now that you're reading about in the church. The gifts continue unabated, and every spiritual gift that's mentioned in the Bible is still available today. And the traditions that pretty much uphold this type of theology are Catholics, Methodists, Pentecostals, Assemblies of God, the more charismatic denominations. Now, that's an oversimplification, but you get the gist, right? So there's those, no gifts are in play now, or at least, you know, all the good ones are gone. And uh, uh, continuationism is the gifts are still in play. Now, the, 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 the list may, may shock you even a little bit, right? Because uh, when I was taking the staff and others through the, the pre-sermon, they're like, really, the Catholics are in that list. I would have thought the Catholics would be a little more, not being disparaging, but a little more stodgy i mean a little more a little less charismatic i mean if you've been to a catholic service it's anything other than charismatic okay <laughs> you understand what i'm saying and uh it's very structured very liturgical but they definitely believe in miracles are still ongoing as a matter of fact that's the way you get sainted the way you get canonized you have to have evidence of and proof of and witnesses to miracles happening and that's the way you get sainted uh, canonized in, in the catholic 
tradition. So that explains just in a nutshell, cessationism versus continuationism. And I guess my question for Cornerstone this morning is, where are you on the spectrum? Where are you on this spectrum? Because you are us. Does that make sense? I mean, when you sign the covenant and become a part of the church, it's we now. There is no them. It's just us. It's we. And so wherever you are is, I mean, I'm just trying to pull us together and say, this is something where when we come from diverse backgrounds as we do, I could go back through the room again and say, you know, we've got some people from this tradition. We've got some people in here from this tradition. So how do we come together and find a common ground on where we should be right now on this issue of spiritual gifts? Does that make sense? And this is the challenge of the modern church. I feel like we could pull some people back together if we could work through some of these issues that we're working through right now with with our own church. Where are we as a church on this spectrum of the spiritual gifts? Now, I want to just say some things out loud, and I've got to move very quickly or my time's just going to be gone today. So I want to say to you that, you know, a lot of times people approach me about theological issues and say, hey, Pastor, are you Calvinist or an Armenian? Well, I'll answer it like this question. I'm neither a wife beater nor a drug addict. (laughs) If you pose two choices to me and I'm neither one, you can't force me into that position or that box. I'm neither. Calvinist nor Armenian. I'm right. I'm following the Bible. But anyway, uh, are you a cessationist pastor or a continuationist? Uh, I don't want to be pushed too hard into either box. Because one, I think, is using tongues incorrectly. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. The other one is saying, we don't even... Listen, you grow up in in one of these traditions and never even hear a sermon about gifts in 50 years. Amen? You've been there? Your church wouldn't talk about it. You don't know anything about it. You weren't taught to pursue it. You weren't taught how it works. You wouldn't know anything hardly about the Holy Spirit if you come from another tradition. That can't be right either. And so what I want to say to you is we're not going to be pushed into either one of these camps completely. We're We're going to find a different position and we're going to try to follow as best we can what we believe Paul is saying. And how the Holy Spirit is leading our church. So, let's go back to the question. Should we be pursuing spiritual gifts? Damon thinks yes. Yes. And I'm going to go with Damon. Because I think the Holy Spirit is still in business. I think he's still filling believers at the moment of salvation... They are being baptized by the Spirit into Christ, the baptism of the Spirit. They are eternally sealed. Ephesians 1.13, if you want the reference, from the moment you get saved, Ephesians 1.13, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And Romans chapter 8 says, except you have the Spirit of Christ, you are none of His. To not have the Holy Spirit is to not be saved, to not be born again. And when I say Holy Spirit and God and Jesus, they're all God. Now, we believe that still here. I believe in God the Father. Jeremy, you need to sing this for us, okay? Uh, I believe in the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Bible reveals God as a trinity, three in one. That's what we believe. Which one's God? Yes. Yes, they are God. God in three manifestations. Jesus in bodily form went back to heaven 
to a different dimension. And he said, it's good that I'm leaving in bodily form because in bodily form I can only be in one place at one time, bound to one place at one time, just as you are bound to one place in time in your body. But he said, when I come in spirit form, John 14, 15, and 16, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be with you all forever. And he'll never leave you. He'll always be with you. How cool is that? God had it all figured out. You don't have to figure it out. He's got it all worked out. So God comes into the believer at salvation. We very much believe this at Cornerstone. Okay? Should we be pursuing the spiritual gifts? Absolutely you should be. And what we mean by pursuing the gifts is we ought to be saying to God, use me, gift me, fill me with supernatural power to minister to the body of Christ so that together we can go get the big mission done, which is to make disciples and expand the kingdom of God. That's what it's all about. Now I'm going to read, I'm going to go slow, and I'm going to ask you to underline and, and note some things. 1 Corinthians 14.1, here we go. 1 Corinthians 14.1. Should we pursue spiritual gifts? Watch Paul. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. I guess your question's answered, right? Love is what Jeremy's going to preach next week. Previous chapter, stuck in between these two chapters. Now pursue love and desire those spiritual gifts, guys. Let the Holy Spirit use you. To build up the body of Christ. And especially that you might what? Prophesy means to proclaim the word of God. It doesn't mean to fortune tell. It doesn't mean to forecast. That's a definition of prophesy. It's not what's in mind here. Prophecy, prophesy, gift of prophecy in the New Testament means to proclaim the word of God. To tell truth. Listen, when you're, we, we've got people volunteering in, with three-year-olds right now that are prophesying. They are truth-telling to our children. Does that make sense? Now, when you lead a small group at your kitchen table, you are truth-telling to your disciples. So he said, I want especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in another tongue, you know, you'll have to figure out what the definition is. A person who speaks in another tongue is not speaking to people, but is speaking to whom? Since... No one understands him. We okay with that? If you speak in in a tongue, no one's going to understand you. So you can only speak to God. You can't speak to the rest of us. I'm just reiterating what Paul's saying. No one's going to understand you. You must be speaking to God because we can't understand you. You He speaks mysteries in the Spirit. Verse 3. On the other hand, the person who prophesies proclaims the word of god speaks to well wow you know who comes to church on sunday morning people people with ears people with minds people who had crappy weeks people are had covid getting healed now people are looking for a job people are fighting with their kids people Come to church on Sunday morning. You know what those people need? Well, I guess we could just go through the same list, couldn't we? Love, encouragement, edification. They, they need to be recharged. They need to be told God's got this. God's got you. It's going to be okay. God, God's going to take care of us. God has a job for you. God has a way forward for you. There is hope for you. That's what we need. We need to be told when we come to Sunday that there is forgiveness for our sins. That Christ has paid a price so that we could be washed clean and our sins could be forgiven. We, we need hope. We need forgiveness. We need help. And the only way people can get that help is when people show up if they can hear what's being understood, what's being said. 
All right, let, let, let's go back to Paul. On the other hand, the person, verse 3, let me go to verse 3. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation, comfort. For the person who speaks in another tongue builds who? Seems a little selfish. But the one who prophesies builds up who? I wish, underline it, all of you spoke in other tongues. Who does Paul wish spoke in other tongues? Now you just talk to me. There's no tricks this morning here, I promise. All of you, does that include the men? Does that include the women? I wish all of you spoke with tongues. Okay, I'm fine with that. Now watch Paul go a little further. But even more, what does he wish even more? That you... Who does he wish prophesied? It's the same sentence. All of us. I wish every born-again member of the church spoke the truth, spoke the Word of God, proclaimed the Word of God because it edifies. Five. I wish all of you spoke in other tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues unless he interprets, because the whole point is this, the church needs to be built up. That's what this assembly is about. And Paul's going to make a very big deal in this chapter. He's talking about what goes on in the public worship. That's what this context is about. Okay? Now we'll talk about praying at home in your closet in tongues. Paul's going to say, knock yourself out. Go ahead. Listen to my position this morning. Wow, we're torturing children next door. Uh, here is Cornerstone's position. This is the position of the elders. We are not going to forbid anyone from speaking in tongues. Just not in this room. Now wait for it and you'll see Paul lay out exactly the same way. You say, well, pastor, I speak in tongues when I pray. I'm proud of you. Go for it. You just let the Holy Spirit use you however you want. That's your gift. You go and you talk to God. But if you do it here, nobody can understand what you're saying. Paul's going to say it. Watch it now. But even more, the person process is greater than the person who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so the church may be built up. So Paul is talking to everyone. And I want to just ask it one more time. What spiritual gift? Does Paul want them to desire above all others? And if you can get this, you'll get Paul's argument. Because they, you say, well, Paul's just pounding this nail and he's hung up on this. No, the Corinthians are hung up on tongues. Tongues this, tongues that. Look how spiritual we are. We have, see, here's our sign of spirituality. We have the ultimate spiritual gift. What is the ultimate spiritual gift? Corinthians say, well, speaking in tongues is the ultimate spiritual gift. Unless you speak in tongues, you don't have the evidence that you've been filled with the Spirit. And the evidence of being filled with the Spirit, the ultimate evidence is to speak in tongues, exact tongues. And so they've answered the question wrong. So Paul is just kind of dismantling that, taking the whole spotlight off of that for a while and putting it onto prophecy and saying one doesn't edify the room, the other one edifies the room. Now, I just want to be frank with you. At Cornerstone, we've tried our best to replicate Christ's model of discipleship and disciple-making, which empowers every man and every woman to use the gift of prophecy. To use the gift of proclaiming the Word of God, especially in a small group context. Because like right now, 
it'll be all I can do to talk and say what I'm going to say. We can't all talk. In a small group context, every member of this church can exercise the gift of prophecy. Does that make sense? And we are in the business of empowering you to use your spiritual gift to edify the body of Christ. And the body is edified even through the small group when you use your gift in that context. So, let's just hasten forward. Why isn't tongues appropriate for public worship? That's really what we want to know. We want Paul to explain this to us, especially you who come from a different tradition. Why isn't tongues appropriate for public worship? And Paul's about to give clear examples why tongues is okay, but not for this moment. And the first reason he gives is because tongues doesn't edify the body. I'm going to read now verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I know you're going to hate me in a minute. Who's Paul talking to? Brothers and sisters. Does that include everybody in the room? If I come to you speaking in other tongues, you'll have to figure out which definition. Are you talking about language now or ecstatic? I don't know. If I come to you speaking in other tongues, will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even lifeless instruments, he's going to use an instrument as an example now, that produce sounds, instruments that make a sound, whether the flute or the harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will we know what is played on the flute or the harp? How will it be recognized? In fact, now he's going to do a little military thing now. If a bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? I don't know what the call to battle sounds like. Does anybody know what those... I mean, if the bugler comes out and just says... The enemy will be honest before anybody wakes up. That's what Paul's saying. It's unclear to know what to do. Verse 9. In the same way, he made an example. Unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech... What's he talking about now? He's talking about the moist fleshly thing in your mouth now. See, watch his wordplay flip back and forth. If in the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages. Watch him switch again now, clearly. There are obviously different kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. Twelve. So also you. Who is he talking to? Everybody in the room. Since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. He's not mad at them for pursuing spiritual gifts. Since you are pursuing spiritual gifts, just get it worked out correctly because how cool would it be for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Christians to be united in one body and be zealous for spiritual gifts and be pursuing their spiritual gift and for all of us to be using those gifts to edify this body of Christ. While that would be everything we've ever dreamed a church of being. And Paul said, yes, let's do that but since tongues can't edify the congregation i want to redirect your zeal for gifts to some gifts that do edify the congregation and tongues is not understood in this room so make that a private exercise and do something here that we can all understand the second reason tongues inappropriate for public worship is the use of tongues was not understood and therefore it was unfruitful paul's word 
It doesn't bear any good fruits if you can't understand it. I'm reading verse 13. Therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Paul says, if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit's praying, but my mind has no idea what's being said. I'm not even edifying my own mind. I can't even say amen to myself. Because I don't know what I just said. Now, the charismatic response would be, but God knows. And you're right, God does know. And there is value in talking to God. This is Paul's point. But you don't know, therefore even you are having trouble being edified because you don't know what you just said to God. You just know you prayed in the Spirit, okay? So you're going to see this exchange go, go back and forth here. 14. If I pray another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. 15. What then? I will pray with the Spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding i will sing praise with the spirit and i will also sing praise with now when y'all sang praises a few minutes ago did y'all understand what you were saying i mean you you you, those were carefully chosen words then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great are you god is what you just saying. Carefully chosen words that glorify God. And I think we all understood what we were saying. Therefore, we sang not only with the Spirit, and not only with enthusiasm, and not only in, in power, but we sang with understanding. <clears throat> we understood the words. 16. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider say... Amen. At your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you're saying. I've had this experience a lot, and uh, uh, where I'm in a foreign country and I'm hearing people pray, and it's almost second nature to me. I, I guess I, I would say it's habitual. Because, like Elijah, whom I love and trust, and I know exactly, I know like 10 words in Romanian, so when he's praying, I recognize certain words. And I know he's talking about heart, he's talking about love, he just said God, he just said Jesus, he just said, you know, whatever, and I'm picking those words out of the prayer, and then when he's finished with his prayer, you know, I mean, <laughs> you've experienced it. So he'll say, I mean, and all the congregation say, I mean, I mean, I mean. And I'll be over there in English, Texan, saying, yeah, amen, amen to that, that's good, that's a good prayer. I have no idea what was just said. He could have said it's cloudy with a 30% chance of rain and, you know, we're going to go back to communism and the world's going to fall apart. Amen. God bless you. That's a great prayer. And that's the danger of saying amen when you don't understand, uh, you know, what's really happening in the room. So he's saying you, can't, you, you couldn't even say amen to somebody's prayer uh, unless you really understood uh, I don't know if some of you can, almost all of you can speak a little Spanish here in Texas. Now, I don't know if you've ever over, over, listened to an eavesdrop on a conversation or there's a conversation going and you think you know what it's about and you comment and you really don't know what it's about. Anyway, there's a lot of danger in this. So look at verse 17. For you may very well be giving thanks 
but the other person is not being built up. That's the bottom line. I mean, we, I could get B over here to stand up. She'd be embarrassed, but she could do it. She could stand up and pray in German. Who speaks German? Yeah, you wouldn't be too edified, would you? Two of you. Nobody else would be edified. So it's not profitable to take the time to do that if it doesn't edify the people in the room. And she could pray a beautiful prayer to the same God you worship, but how would we say amen? It'd sound like, you know, just some foreign jumble to us, okay? Verse 18, I thank God, and watch this, I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than you all. Why did he have to tell them that? This came in out of nowhere. Why did he have to tell them that? Yet, 19, in the church, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others than 10,000 words in another tongue. Now, this whole exchange is fascinating to me. Paul's framing the conversation around exercising gifts to the church. Let me ask you, do you think they were shocked when Paul said, I speak in tongues more than you all? Why? Because when he was with them in the worship, he never spoke in tongues in the public worship. So now Paul sails away. The church now gets some outside teachers in. They now achieve this super spirituality and they all start talking in tongues. Now they look at Paul and say, you know, you're disgusting. You're not even spiritual like us. We don't even think you are nematicos. We don't even think you are a person of the spirit. Why? You don't exercise the evidence of speaking in tongues in the worship, which is the evidence, the ultimate gift of being filled with spirit. That's the way the Corinthians thought. It's also the way the modern charismatic movement thinks. And, and this is the, what's being taught. And Paul's saying, no, I speak with tongues more than you all. Now, you'll have to figure out what Paul's saying right there. Is he talking about ecstatic language or language? I don't know exactly. But whatever he's saying, it's the counter to their argument. He speaks in tongues more than them. They just don't know it because he does it in private. So is it okay if our Cornerstone members pray in private in tongues? Well, why not? If that's what the Holy Spirit leads you to do, knock yourself out. You go. Talk to God. It, 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 if there's the Spirit's leading that, thou shalt not say to the Holy Spirit, thou shalt not. That is our position here, and that is not a typical Baptist position. But that is our position because we think it's Paul's position, as you are clearly seeing on the pages. I speak in tongues more than you all. Now, the only other thing he can be saying is I can talk 37 languages. Okay, But if he is doing that with them, then he's interchanging the two terms constantly through the text. Okay, So, he says, the bottom line is this. In the church, I'd rather speak five words you could all understand than 10,000 words. Uh, you know, uh, Miss Chin, get up and speak French here this morning. Who speaks French? Loser. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> She's fluent. But it wouldn't edify the body. That's the point. And so we're going to edify the body when the body comes together. Here's the third reason no tongues in the corporate worship. Tongues has not historically transformed God's people. Now these are not my words. These are Paul's words. What Paul is about to do is he's about to go to Isaiah 28 and grab a verse from the Old Testament. 
28.11. He's about to grab a verse from the Old Testament and make a fresh and flexible application to a New Testament church in Europe. Okay? Watch what he does. 1 Corinthians 14.20. Brothers and sisters, who's Paul talking to? No, you need to know. It's, help me here. Everybody in the room, don't be childish in your thinking. If you want to be infantile in something, he's going to say, be infantile in evil. If you don't want to, if you want to be ignorant, be, be just, you know, be, be infantile in regards to evil, but be adult in your thinking. It is written in the law, in your journal, right, Isaiah 28, right there, verse 11. I will speak to this people by the people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in tongues then, other tongues then, is intended as a sign. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. And he said, and sometimes tongues is a, is a warning, it's a condemnation, it's a negative sign. He said, it's not always a positive sign that you're spiritual elites. He said, tongues didn't just show up in Corinth. He said, tongues shows up in Isaiah 28. And the prophet said, tongues are going to enter into Israel, but you're not, it's not going to benefit you at all, is what's going to happen. Now, now let me keep reading. 22. Speaking in other tongues then is intended as a sign not for believers but for, while prophecy is not for unbelievers but for, and he's just applying the different signs. 23. If therefore the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other tongues and people who are outsiders, non-church members come in, or unbelievers, non-saved come in, and they hear what's going on, Will they not say that you are out of your minds? I mean, does that not seem really clear to y'all? I mean, to me, that's one of the clearest statements in this whole book right there. If what we do in here is confusing, we are not helping the cause of Christ. We're not, we're not edifying you. We're not convicting the sinner who needs to be saved and hear the gospel. And if, uh, if the gospel is being proclaimed in another tongue, but you couldn't understand the tongue, then how could you know that Christ died for your sins and was buried, rose again, was seen? There is the whole point right there. So that's Paul's just driving it home now. He said the, the, the lost people in the unchurched and the people, remember, they're going to come in here and say, y'all are crazy, 24. But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever comes in, He's convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed and as a result he'll fall down and say, God's among you. Somebody comes in and hears the gospel preached and understands what's being preached and hears the message. It's going to, listen, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Romans 1, 16, the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When you hear the gospel, it's transformative. It has its own power, but you have to understand it. So what he's saying is he threw back to the Old Testament. He said tongues came as an ancient sign to Israel. And guess what? It didn't help them either. Because what was prophesied to them through the tongue, they didn't hear it. They didn't want to believe it. And tongues did not benefit them. It did not transform their behavior. And it did not bring Israel into a better relationship with God because they experienced tongues. Not my example, Paul's. Point three. Our goal should be then to build up the church. I think we're all there, right? Verse 26, we've almost knocked this chapter out, guys, way to go, here we go, 26, what then, oh gosh, yeah, you're catching on now, what then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, an interpretation, 
So here are the rules. Every, so let me just say it this way. When you guys come to church, y'all are all gifted and filled with the Spirit. Everybody's fired up about being here in church. Everybody wants to edify everybody. Awesome. Now we just figure out, have to figure out how to organize that. Is that fair? Awesome. Now we just have to figure out how to get it organized so that, you know, those who are leading praise will do it in English so we can understand it with words that are meaningful in a way that's not... Can we, for, I, again, it's my age, but I listen a lot of Jack FM. Yeah, there you go. It's my 80s people over here, you know. Anyway, I'm flipping through the oldie stations the other day, and you know, between Susan and I, she's a lot older than me, we know them all. And uh, man, we got onto something. I'm like, this song didn't play in the 80s, or we would know it. It was just, it was just a mess. Now, Craig would know it. I, I, Rick Wortley would know it, but I don't know it. I mean, it was just confusion. It was foreign to me, and it was confusion, and therefore, it did not edify me. Matter of fact, we had the volume up pretty loud in the car, and I'm like, this is like grating. And we flipped the station. You say, why? It just didn't resonate with our spirit. And I know that's a silly example, but you kind of get what I'm talking about, don't you? When you're ever around something that doesn't bear witness with your spirit, it's confusion, it's not clear, it's not understanding. You know, it's no secret, we go to the gym, my doctor keeps telling me, yoga, yoga, yoga. You are not flexible, yoga, yoga, yoga. Okay? And I, I love yoga, and there's this one surrender yoga I've been doing, you hold the position for like nine hours, you know, until, <laughs> until your muscles surrender, that's the whole point. Which is great, and I love it, but when the class starts and they start playing, you know, Deepak Chopra, and he starts trying to hypnotize me for the first ten minutes, you know, to release it and enter the spirit world, I'm over there praying, you know, God, no, I don't want any unclean spirits, and, you know, I'm, I'm over there, seriously, I'm over there, God, you know, wrap your protection around this haunted yoga room and don't give me any of what these people have. I just want to be flexible, I don't want to be demon-possessed. And there's moments where it doesn't bear witness with my spirit and I get nervous. What Paul's talking about here is we got to do things decently and in order so that people are edified and people are, I mean, verse, verse 26, everything is to be done for building up. Amen? The corporate worship should be orderly. We can only build each other up if we have order and organization so uh, uh, Paul invokes some wordplay. Let's just read a little bit. He sets the parameters so high now on tongues that it's almost prohibitive by the way he sets the parameters. Watch this, 27. If anyone speaks in another tongue, there to be only two. You can see Paul dictating to somebody and they look at him like, really? Because we were down there and they were all talking, okay, maybe three. Well, that didn't help us at all. Look at his language. By two, only three at the most, each in turn. Say that a different way for Texans. Only one at a time. And then let someone interpret. Stephanie Perryman in the room. Padre Nosotros. Give me a little of that. Give me a little of that Lord's Prayer real quick. Letty, what in the world is she saying?
Now, if there's a spiritual biblical display of tongues, we just had a tongue and an interpretation. And she said that she said, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord's Prayer in Spanish. Now, if we could exercise that, and we do exercise that. Listen, when we go overseas, I, I, I preached half my sermons through interpreters, I feel like. Now, it, it, we do, and it's effective if there's a translation. Because then the people are edified because they're hearing the gospel and they're hearing the word of God. Okay, 29. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, then the first person has to be silent. So now what he's talking about is one person talking, somebody else is good. Then one has to yield. Have you ever watched uh, the House of Commons in the UK? It's totally different from watching C-SPAN in the House of Representatives here in America. It's raucous. I mean, it looks like a bar fight's going to break out in that room. They're like, here, 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 shout each other down. What Paul's saying is none of that in the church, please. If somebody's talking and somebody else needs to talk, somebody's got to yield. We can't all be talking at the same, at the same time. Watch, watch here. Two or three prophets, others should evaluate. Verse 29. But if something has been revealed, then the first has to be silent. 31, for you can, who's he talking to? You can all prophesy, one by one, so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. Now, you have to understand, this is a house church with 25 people, 30 people. And the bigger it gets, the more difficult this gets. The more organized and the fewer people, in some ways, can can speak in a given service, but it, but it still it still works out, okay? For you can all prophesy one by one, so that everyone may everyone may learn, and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophets' spirits are subject to the prophets. You may want to put a star by that verse. It means if you're going to proclaim the word of God, you have yourself under control. Your spirit is subject to you. You say, well, I just got up and talked. I don't even know what I said. Then you're not allowed to talk. Because your spirit is to be under control. Your self-control right now in that, in that moment. Verse 33. Now we've come to the really fun stuff. Verse 33. Since God is not a God of disorder but of peace. Heather, back up to 32. I want to read 32 in the first part of 33 is one sentence. Uh, the verses were not put in until... 1500s or so, you understand that? We've got a crazy verse break right here, okay? 32, and the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets since God is not a God of disorder but of peace, period. Let's just put that together, okay? Now, I'm going to pause right here and say this. i got about five or ten left. You're going to have to bear with me. Let me deliver this now. Since you've come this far in the chapter, almost done, you clearly see the chapter is building on the unity theme. We are all one. We are all one. We're defining what a spiritual person is. They're listening to the Spirit. They're yielding to the Spirit. They're being empowered by the Spirit. And the ecstatic expression of tongues was not building up in the congregation. They had not answered the questions right. And Paul is saying, I'm not against gifts. I'm not even against tongues. But I'm against this confusion in the corporate worship. I want everyone to use their gifts. But I want you to use your gifts in a way that's orderly and in a way that builds up. 
Again, tongues is not a spiritual superpower, as David likes to say it. It's not a superpower for spiritual elites. Tongues is not the evidence of you possessing the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to be real clear with some language here. Rather, Paul is arguing that you are to be possessed by the Holy Spirit. Can I say this? I'm saying some Texan ways. You get you don't own God. God sure like to own you. You don't own God's power. God would like to empower you and take control of your mind, your heart, your life, and make you what He designed you to be from the day of creation a living icon, a living image of God Himself. He wants to put His presence into your life. And transform you into what he designed you to be. You won't own him. He's going to own you. How cool is that? So it's a little language thing we've got wrong. But we'll work on it. You know. I, I, so we, we make it sound like I possess the Holy Spirit. No, what I did is I finally took my hands off the controls. And I said to the Holy Spirit of God, you're in control. You take control of me. God's lordship over your life will be expressed by your obedience to God's Spirit. So if you call Jesus Lord, those words are hollow unless this is happening. If you let the Holy, if you say, you're my Lord, and then you control your life, and you say, well, I'm going to do this, my gift is that, I'm going to... What we need to say is, I'm going to take my hands off. God, you are Lord of my life. I will now submit to the Spirit you put within me, the presence of God within me, that seals me and empowers me, and I will live my life now continually yielding to your control every day. And I found for me it has to be an everyday thing. I can't have a service like this, and, and, and we will in a minute, yield control of ourselves to God, because what I find I do is I take the controls back up somewhere. I don't know if it'll be tonight or tomorrow or Thursday, but somewhere along the way, I'll just sneak back over into the driver's seat and push Jesus over into the passenger seat, start taking the car of my life wherever I want it to go. And at some point, I'll have to wake up and say, oh God, I'm sorry. I, 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 I tried to take the controls again. I want to resubmit. Now that's a continual process that all of us need to be working through no matter how long you're saved. Now it might surprise you, having run through the whole chapter practically, that this chapter is not known for what I just taught. This chapter is actually known for being the proof text for keeping women quiet in the church. And now we've come to it. We've already repeatedly illustrated through this book that proof texting is to take a verse out of context, cobble it with another couple of verses, make your own private theology. We've showed you how to do it, how it can be done, and why you shouldn't do it. And when you do it, you run off into the ditch somewhere, okay? And they've done it, and this is where they did it from. What you've got in front of you now is the most controversial, in my opinion, passage in the entire New Testament. Period. 33b. As in all churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to, be, to submit themselves, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husband at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. You, right now, you should be saying, what just happened? 
what just happened. And you can go home and get five different Bible versions that you've got at home and look this up. And you'll see verse 33, half of it goes with 32, half of it goes with 34. In some versions, there's a double dash. In some versions, there's footnotes all over the page because you've come to the most controversial, disputed thing in the world right now. And even the theologians are divided into camps on how to deal with these verses. So let me just take you through some options very quickly to help you out. First, let's talk about textual reliability. Before I say what I'm going to say and freak anybody out, We affirm our belief that you can put trust in your Bible. The Bible before you this morning is 100% reliable. We have staked our souls on it. We've staked our eternity on it. That the gospel is right and Jesus is the Lord and God is the creator. We've staked our eternity on the fact that this book is the most accurate, attested to book in human history. Now, I would challenge any of you. Is it called visual theology, David? Take David's module on... Who's in visual theology? Are you enjoying that? Eating it up, right? You take David's visual theology class. It'll really help with what I'm talking about right now. He's not going to tell you don't trust your Bible. He's going to teach you to trust your Bible. It's God's Word for us, and it's reliable. Okay? But a printing press was not invented until 1439. So for 1,400 years, 1,500 years almost, the Bible was hand-copied. Who hand-copied it? Human beings. Do I need to fill in all the blanks right here? Human beings for 1,500 years hand-copied the Bible. And in all of that, you think, wow, it's going to be filled with errors. Filled with controversy. In all of that, there is only a few, point two, contested words, phrases. Point two. As a matter of fact, David, let's just talk out loud here for a minute. There's about, you say six, five? Six. Six passages in the entire thing that we really need to wrestle with and figure out what's going on with this. And from those six, this is probably the hairiest one right here. We've already talked about the Johannine comma when we talked through 1 John, how a little phrase found its way in there in the transmission. And we're saying to you, your Bible is 100% reliable. There's just a couple of places where we're scratching our head, and now you've come to one. Because what you just read doesn't sound like anything you've read for 14 chapters. And you're wondering where in the world did these statements, these two sentences come from. Of the six passages that are wrestled with and and disputed and talked about, here's what's important to know about about six passages. None of them, Pastor David, have to do with the gospel. Nobody's disputing anything about the the deity of Christ. The Godhead, the Trinity, you know, the the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. All the first order theological importance issues are settled, done, period. These are tertiary things on the side. The problem is this one's so important it affects half the people in the room. Affects half the people in the room. 
Okay? So, let me just ask you a few questions as I wrap this. Do these two sentences go here? Now, if you're using the church's journal that we supplied for you, it doesn't have a lot of notes in it there, pre-printed notes. If you have a study Bible at home, any of you with a study Bible, when you get to this, 33, 34, you'll have footnotes in the margin of your NIV, CSV, ESV, and you'll see alternate readings. Most manuscripts say, some people have da-da-da-da, and you'll see a note there that says some versions have verses 34 and 35 at the end of the chapter after verse 40. That'll be a note you'll see. Now, the question is, do these two sentences go here? Okay? The manuscripts, Greek manuscripts, are divided into Eastern and Western families. The Western manuscripts all have these two verses at the end of the chapter. The Eastern manuscripts have these two verses inserted between 33 and 37. Where do they go? I'm just going to leave it there. Are these words, I'm just asking the right questions so you'll know what the right questions are. Are these words an interpolation? An interpolation means an insertion that's not Pauline. Paul didn't say it. Somebody else's words got put into the text. Does that make sense? Now, here's how it makes sense. Uh, you have a Greek manuscript pick up there. Here's a Greek... Uh, David, is this Hebrews? Page out of Hebrews, I think. Here's a Greek manuscript laid out in three columns. Okay? Look right there between the columns. Do you see that writing between the columns? I know you can't read it, but you see there's writing between the columns. Uh, that writing between the columns is the scribe making notes or someone after the scribe making notes. Somebody has got this Greek, and they've made some notes there in the margin. Does that make sense? Now we dig this document up 500 years later, and somebody's going to make a copy of it and compare it to other copies, and they're thinking, wow, they probably forgot to put that verse in right there, and that's why there's an arrow. Let's put that into the text. And that, like Rebecca's making notes in her journal this morning. Let's just use Rebecca's journal. Re Rebecca, let's imagine that your journal was not pre-printed by us, but it was handwritten in your handwriting. Let's imagine we gave you a copy of 1 Corinthians, and you hand-wrote it real quick on the left side of the page, and I said, get ready for the series. And then Rebecca brings her handwritten journal to the church, and then I preach, and David preaches, and Jeremy preaches through the series. Rebecca's making notes like great arrow over here, asterisk over here, alternate definition right over here, etc. And now, Rebecca passes, time passes. One day we're trying to reconstruct a 1 Corinthians because the government has seized all the documents. There are no electronic files. And so we're trying to find every written copy of 1 Corinthians in the world, and we lay them all down. This is what they do. They lay them all down. And they compare every reading across the page. And they realize, oh look, over here in the margin of this one it says, blah, 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 blah. Should that be in the text? If this one is older, that, and they try to figure out the order they were written in, and which one caused the change, and all of this. When it's all being handwritten, it's not as easy as you might imagine. You have to compare all of these documents together, know their sources, know their history, and be able to pull all of the scholarship together to figure out this is called a margin gloss. Just means notes in the margin. Margin gloss. If a document was made from that document 
and somebody put those words into the text, now that's called an interpolation. It means an insertion into the text. And now you can't tell what, Paul's, what are Paul's words and what are not Paul's words. Does that make sense? So here's the question. Are those words an interpolation? I'll let you think about that. I want to ask you another question. Are the words of verse 34 and 35 in harmony with the rest of the text? I think you could all answer this one pretty easily, right? The words of verse 34 and 35 are not in harmony with the rest of the text. For example, there's internal evidence within the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul has nonstop, nonstop said, men and women, men and women, men and women, brothers and sisters, brothers, I want you all to use, everyone should, everyone should, everyone should edify the body, everyone needs to be built up, everybody needs to use their gifts, everybody, all of you. Chapter 11, when the women are praying and prophesying in the church, this is the dress code. It's a given. It's a given that everyone is participating. And then all of a sudden you hit 14, 35, and you're like, 34, and you're like, what just happened? Let all the women keep silence, and they're totally, totally silenced in that it stands in stark contrast to everything Paul has said for 14 chapters and actually makes the opposite point now. Something is wrong here. Clearly, something is wrong. So are these words in harmony with the text? No. Are these words in harmony with the rest of First Corinthians? No. Are these words in harmony with external evidence? In other words, in Paul's other writings, Book of Romans, Galatians, clearly there's a whole chapter, Romans 16, that shows the women, co-worker, partners, and an apostle woman, and a deacon woman delivering the letter. They're clearly totally involved in the ministry all the way at the apostle level. It's not in harmony with the rest of Paul's writing. So here's the bigger question. Now we've come down to it. Are these Paul's words or words of a false teacher? Now here's the problem with being a pastor. I have to stand before God and give account of every word I say, which is no small matter. I'm a little nervous about it. I'm not qualified. I don't have the authority, let me say it this way, to tell you, it's not Pauline. All I can do is get you to ask the right questions, do research, and follow the Holy Spirit, okay? But I can show you the different schools of thought. One branch of scholarship believes that the reason these words are out of harmony with the context of the passage and the preceding chapters is because they're not Paul's words. As a matter of fact, this branch of scholarship says that Paul is using these, these are the words of their letter being quoted back to them Remember we talked about QRD, quotation, refutation, device, and how all through the book, I mean, it's, it's not just eight times, but it's all through the book. Paul said, you said this, all things are lawful. But I'm saying to you, not all things edify. You said we can do whatever we want. I'm saying to you, that's not what Christian liberty is about. You said in your letter, blah, blah, blah. I'm saying, no, you said in your letter, we don't have to have sexual relations. I'm saying to you, you're crazy. Uh, you said in your letter this, and he's just correcting them by quoting their words, immediately refute them. Now, where they can all agree, the scholars in the modern Bibles put quotations on that. Does that make sense? But nobody's going to put a quotation on this because they're scared to death. There's not total consensus in the room. Does that make sense? Uh, but one big branch of scholarship believes that this is another quotation refutation device. And as a matter of fact, I challenge you to read it this way. If you put quotation marks around 33b 
after the period in 33, all the way to the end of 35, it totally reverses the meaning of what was just said. Totally reverses the meaning of everything that was just said. And if they're right, then Paul is quoting a faction of false teachers now. And he's saying, you say this, but I'm going to correct it right now. He took their words from the letter they sent him in the Zero Corinthians exchange, throws it down right now, and is about to just kick it all the way to the curb. The words in 34 and 35 don't align with Pauline teaching in other places in the Bible. I want to show you that. Paul never says, obey the oral law. Jesus never told the Jews, keep the man-made rules. Jesus said, don't keep the man-made rules. And he said to the people who were the rule enforcers, you're a bunch of vipers. You're, you're whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Listen, the whole tone of the New Testament is against keeping the oral law. This is something Paul was passionate against. And when these Jews, Jewish faction, merged syncretism, Judaism and Christianity together in the church, the church as Paul started, he lit them up. Maybe later this year we're going to preach through the book of Galatians. This is what the whole book of Galatians is about. It's Paul untangling this. Let me read from Galatians. Galatians 4, 9. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless, back to the law. How can you turn back to God once you know? Do you want to be enslaved by the law, by them, the commandment, the oral command, all over again? Paul argues against this. He argues for the freedom of believers from the verbal law. And Paul consistently admonishes his congregations not to observe the Jewish verbal law. It's man-made. It's not of God. It puts you in slavery. Galatians 5, verse 4, who are you trying to be, you who are trying to be justified by the law, by keeping the law, you're alienated from Christ. Watch Paul's conclusion. You have fallen from grace. Paul says to make salvation by keeping the man-made law, it constitutes a clear rejection of the cross of Jesus Christ. You've fallen from grace. Now, this QRD, quotation, reputation device, rings true because if you keep reading, in a QRD, what follows will immediately correct what was just said. In other words, if we quote it, we say, you say, let the women keep silence in the church as the law says. By the way, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, does not say that. It's not in the Old Testament law. You won't find this in your Old Testament. This, is a, this comes out of oral tradition, comes out of the historian Josephus, where the Jewish men are sitting in a smoke-filled room beating up on the women and saying they need to keep their mouth shut and go home and be barefoot and pregnant. That's where this tradition comes from. It does not come out of the Bible. So now watch Paul blow it up. 1 Corinthians 14, 36. Did the word of God originate from you? You say let the women keep silent in the church and not permit to speak. They won't learn anything left their ask. Wait a second. Did the word of God originate from you? Let me help you with a pronoun. Uh, you men, <laughs> did the word of God, and, and if you research it, these articles and, and, and all are masculine. Did the word of God originate with you? Or did the word of God come only to you, fill in the blank, 
Does the word of God only come to you men? Oh, I see how it is. Okay. 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, this is what the whole book's been about. If anyone thinks they're spiritual, he should recognize that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's commandment. Paul is not attempting to silence the women. Paul is attempting to rebuke the men for silencing the women. Do you see the flip of this? Paul is saying, silence the women. Did the word of God come only to you? Uh, Really? Okay. So there's like a male Bible and a female? What does that look like? You go to the bookstore, I'd like a male Bible, please. The one written to me. Well, which one's written to the women then? You see the absurdity of the argument? And Paul is using this absurdity again to show the silliness of their position. So, obviously, the word of God neither originated nor came exclusively to the men. It came to the whole congregation. Now, here's, here, here's what's tragic and ironic. The words that Paul penned to assure the unrestricted participation of women in the church got misunderstood and instead barred women from participating in church for thousands of years. What a twist. What what an ironic twist. Now Paul already knows from Chloe, chapters 1 through 6, Chloe's report. Paul already knows from Chloe's report that the men in Corinth have already ignored Paul's previous directions and letters. Paul already knows that. That's why he keeps writing them more letters. They've already ignored his previous letters, so watch the last and final light up. Verse number 38. If anyone ignores this, say it with me. He. Ouch. You say, well, I just want to ignore all this teaching about men and women. Paul says, then you're going to be ignored. If you refuse to take apostolic direction about how the church should be organized, you're the one who's going to be ignored. Now listen to Paul's conclusion. So then, now let's get happy again. So then, so then, let's wrap it. My, now watch the irony here. Watch the irony here. If the chauvinists are right, here's what Paul did. 14 chapters, you all, you all, brothers, sisters, brothers, sisters, brothers, sisters, everyone use your gifts. Women, be quiet. Come right back to this. So brothers and sisters, be eager to, something doesn't fit. Do you see it? And so that's why this is the most contested passage probably in the New Testament. They're trying to figure out how to deal with this because it's clearly not, something's not right here, okay? Now, the easiest thing is the QRD. It could be an interpolation. It's really hard to say with certainty what's happening here. But I want to tell you, Paul is not contradicting what he's just said for 14 chapters because he comes right back to his conclusion and then tells all of you men and women to prophesy. I think nothing could be clearer for us, okay? So then, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. and Do not forbid the speaking of tongues. Do you know what Cornerstone's position is going to be? Do not forbid the speaking of tongues. But we're also going to have the same position that says, not in the corporate worship, because it doesn't edify the congregation. Does that seem fair? I think Paul had a great solution for how to bring the congregation together. And in an age where we are attempting to pastor... Pentecostals and, and, and ultra-conservative Baptists and some children of Catholics and someone from Church of Christ and bring them together united by the Holy Spirit and the Gospel. I think Paul has this really worked out through the Holy Spirit nicely for us. 
You want to exercise that spiritual, then exercise it in this way. But for the, the room like this, let's do what edifies. All right, I've just preached three months worth of sermons. <laughs> Sorry. It had to be done. Okay. Here's the punchline. At Cornerstone, we're going to be equal opportunity and access to the gospel. We're going to disciple men and women equally. We're going to give men and women platforms to use their gifts. It's as a matter of fact, our job as a church to help people find their gift. The church sometimes will recognize your gift before you do and direct you in that gift and help you develop your gift. Not only are we going to say a woman can't have a gift, we're going to help you develop your gift so that you can edify the body of Christ through your gift. We're going to specialize in looking at teenagers and helping them find their gifts and figure out how to use them for a lifetime serving God. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to challenge you with just a thought of reflection before we dismiss. Any gift of the Spirit could manifest itself in your life at any time. I want you to hear what I'm saying now and think about it. Any gift of the Holy Spirit could manifest itself in your life at any time. What I mean is God can supernaturally empower you to do anything He wants you to do. If God wanted you to cast out demons, He'd give you the ability to do it. If God wanted you to pray over the sick and bring some healing, God could empower you to do that. I believe it. Above all things, He says, I want you to prophesy. So, for those who are very bashful in the room, I want you to know that I know it's hard for you to speak, and I get that. The Holy Spirit will supernaturally empower you to share the gospel with someone. He'll empower you supernaturally to make a disciple. You don't have to do all of this in your own power. The Holy Spirit will empower you to edify the body of Christ. How blessed will our church be as hundreds of us yield complete control to the Holy Spirit of God. You're going to be a part of a church where every burden is being lifted. Where every need is being met. Where every struggle is being shared. Where no one has to pray alone. Where no one has to carry a burden alone. Where no one has to walk alone. Where God's people are constantly thinking about how do I lift my brother and sister? How do I build up the body? In this moment... Just say to the Holy Spirit of God, God, I've been thinking about this incorrectly. I've wanted you, and I've wanted to possess you, and I've wanted to own you, and I've wanted to have you. And I just didn't express it the right way. What I really mean is I give myself completely to you. Take all of me. Take my mind and my tongue and my ears and my hands and my feet and my energy and my intellect and my ability and my technology and my skills and my love and my encouragement. God, take all of me right now in this moment because I yield control of my life completely to you, Holy Spirit of the living God. 
I am zealous for you, but right now I want to just say, I am yours. I am yours. You are the Lord of my life. Now we're going to have to put feet to that and action to that. Look for needs. Ask God to equip you and empower you to meet the need. Living God who dwells within us. God, we surrender ourselves afresh to you this morning. Lord, maybe in some days to come we'll take the controls up again, but when we do, just convict us and remind us that we need to take our hands off the controls and yield back to you freshly. We love you. Thank you for the unity that exists in this place. Thank you for the giftedness that you are working through the individual members to edify the body. Lord, thank you for uniting many different traditions under one roof here. Lord, let the edification of the body and the unity come first in this place. God, thank you for your power and grace in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's close our service. If you would with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Paul blessed the Corinthians with these words. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you. God bless you. You're dismissed.